0: Hey there, it's Pastor Evan here. Welcome to Unpacked. This is a new series, Unpacking Life as a Messy Human. We're exploring the soul and the strength that comes from the journey of trying to live life authentically. We hope you find it helpful and that you can see yourself in the conversations, the stories, and the interviews. Have a listen and subscribe. Hey, welcome to Unpacked. We're glad you decided to join us today. Hey, Tara, what are we doing today? Who are we talking to? We get to talk to Dr. Mono in Haiti. Okay. And I'm super excited about this because uh, Dr. Mono was like a really good friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And I've known him since I think my very first trip to Haiti was in 2002. So and I go there or was going there quite a bit. So I love this because we get to kind of have this very familiar conversation. It's like talking to your friend. Yeah, it was awesome. One of the things that's exciting about it is um, Dr. Mono's in Haiti and he runs a diabetic clinic that we support. The larger family of churches, the Evangelical Covenant Church of Canada supports his uh, diabetic clinic. But also one of the cool parts of this interview is that these are the stories we usually get him to tell when you're actually present in Haiti with him. Yeah, we kind of force him to tell some oldies. Yeah. (laughs) But they're the best stories, and and he is such a good storyteller, so it's going to be fun. And I like, really, that in a lot of ways he tells some of this, we get him to tell some of the stories that really shaped who he is Mm -hmm. and have kind of shaped even, for me, even a little bit of who I am. Yeah, I'm excited about it. And also, anytime we talk about Haiti, it's just that place has got a piece of my heart. Mm -hmm. And I know yours, too, after being there yourself and a few times with with us it's Uh, two parts oh it's gonna be a two-parter that's right two-parter (laughs) because we're both long-winded but i think it's gonna be absolutely worth uh listening today and also waiting until next week to to hear the the second half of it Mm -hmm. so again uh we're glad that you decided to join us on the podcast hope you enjoy
1: Doctor, we got (laughs) you. Well, I
2: can see you.
1: Look at you, you, you're growing long hair just like me. (laughs) How are you doing? Okay, I'm okay. You're in the Dominic. Yes. Just on a little holiday or what are you doing? Uh, Just visiting my son cool
2: and i needed a. and i needed a break
1: how uh how is he
2: doing well he's been okay yeah he's good how
1: old is he now how old are you now 15 oh man so <laughs> does that mean he gets to have a driver's license and all that kind of stuff soon or what does that mean yes yeah.
2: Yes, I'm here to practice with him. Oh. Good. He's already driving, just give him more practice.
1: I got you. I got you. Yeah. Um, Both Caroline and Erica got their driver's licenses last month. So they drive away from my house now on their own. Oh, congratulations to them. Yeah, to them, yeah.
2: To to enjoy
1: their freedom responsibly. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So, um, have you ever even listened to a podcast? I guess I did. Okay, but Tara and I have started a podcast. Our our goal for today is really, we just wanted to kind of get a bit of a recording of you and your, your story. So, really what Tara is after, it, she really wants us to just talk like we've talked so many times before, where I kind of get you to to share a little bit of your story and how you became a doctor and then some of the challenges around being a doctor and just just some of those kind of questions so so i'm i'm excited to, t- to see you it's, it seems like it's been so long since we've been able to lay eyes on each other that it's like i don't know who this guy was with all the hair on the video but are you doing okay you guys doing okay down there yes we're doing uh, so i would say we have survived yeah, in surviving mode. Yeah. I, I, I actually think that's true of us too these days. Obviously, our survival mode and your survival mode look a little bit different. But all right. So I'll start. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'll start here. I went to Haiti my very first time. I believe it was in 2002. And I went in July, which I vowed to never do again. Um, it was hot. <laughs> <they're so> hot. <laughs> and uh, if I hadn't fallen in love with, with the people there, I'm not sure I would have ever returned because I am not good at hot. Uh, and it was insane. Um, but on that trip, I, I kind of, I met you, but but you weren't around the whole time I was there. You had been... Uh, no, I was...
2: I was still, I think I was at the end of my medical studies in the Dominican Republic. Yeah. yeah. Because every time Cafe used to come, I would go uh, to meet with her. It's, uh, she, we always say that uh, it's a nice excuse to meet. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I only met you like one time, and, and I don't know what happened to you, but you were a whole lot younger then. I. I uh, I just <laughs> so, um, can you tell us um, a little bit of your story? Like, we, we would love to hear your story. And so, maybe, maybe let's just start off with a quick, like, you're a little guy in Haiti. You speak impeccable English. How did you learn to speak English? know, you speak multiple languages, but... Um, Creole being your major language, but how did you learn to to speak English?
2: It was, actually it came natural because I was lucky as a kid and I was selected to play with one of the uh, that speak English in the neighborhood and they wanted him to speak Creole. So I was my goal was to teach him how to speak queer to play with him and talk to him in queer so by playing with him i end up picking words and then by picking words i start making uh, sentences two times they had a ditch uh, satellite television and we had to sit many hours watching tv so this helped me a lot with my hearing and that's why that's how it
1: happens hmm. and uh, you were what 10 years old can you remember how old you were even uh, yes I was like 10 so but but the
2: first uh, it, I, I was encouraged by my dad to learn how to speak English and because it was kind of humiliating um, position because I was like serving a rich kid, you know, me. I was kind of be there to, for his entertainment. Mm. Okay. So that's not, that's not a very, you know, right position. So my dad told me that whatever, all the people teasing me for this position that it to be the kind of entertainer for this kid. So I, it's an opportunity for me to learn a new language. And, with just one sentence, what is this? That's how I build up my vocabulary. So as I was playing with this kid, whatever uh, opportunity I had, I would ask him, What is this? And he would insert in English, would tell me the name.
1: So that's how I build up my
2: my vocabulary. Awesome.
1: So uh maybe the real question is did you teach uh did you teach him Creole or did he teach you English? Yes. <laughs> I think <did> we both <laughs> It was like a 50-50. <laughs> That's good. That's awesome. So so you're a little guy and you've been a doctor now for 18, 19 years? Something like that? Uh, well,
2: since 2003.
1: Okay. Okay, so you're about 18, 19 years. 19, 18, yes. 19 years, somewhere in there. Yes. Okay. And what, what spurred you on to, to think about being a doctor and, and specifically being a doctor in Haiti? So, so first question is, is there a story that led you towards your calling as a doctor? yeah, as you said, the word
2: calling, it's sometimes, it's also frustration for many people and way that, you know, we have lots of people in church and organization that is waiting to be called. You know, like to have a this sense of, you know, this urgency to do things. But for me, it was, it was a guy that we considered a neighborhood as a star because he used to play football. And then he was sick and we had to do fundraising to help him. Since I was this little kid playing uh, with the rich kids because they have a compound, you know you know the community. So people that live in the compound, usually they are foreigners, they are considered to be the rich. So since I was uh, the liaison between the community and this compound in a way, because I could go in and out whenever I want because I was friendly, this boy. So I had uh, the mission to collect money from those people to help this guy for his surgery. And I remember we collected the money and we paid for the surgery, but when I went to visit him at the hospital, the doctor said there was nothing, you know, he's dying. So he, he said something without any sensitivity or remorse, did he make a mistake? for us, it, it had like an emotional things for me. And it's, it was this doctor that, I don't even know his name. And, like, and like, there's no way that I can truly trace him. So when I met this doctor, I said, you know, I want to be a doctor, but I want to be a different one. The hmm. different doctor from this doctor. Then as I was growing up, I, used to go to a missionary hospital. And again, when I was going to this missionary hospital, I had a feeling that they are doing the good things, but for the people that do the good things, they don't really love those people. So when I I become older, I find out that this kind of, of work was kind of, I feel superior and my goal is to have those inferior. So there's a big ga- gap between who I am and who they are. So that's now I got the explanation from this. So, and all of those you know, those two things, I think those are the things that make me who I am today. Yeah. In a way that I wanted to be a different doctor. And I also want to, doing charity work,
1: or caring for people with love. Yeah, so I, um, I was watching a video that a doctor here actually had shared on his Facebook uh, this last week. And it was a video of another doctor who was speaking to a group of people. And she said, if you can't love, you shouldn't love people. You shouldn't be a doctor. She said, you might yes. be able to heal people, but you'll be a terrible doctor. Because yes. the ultimate... The ultimate purpose of being a doctor is to love and, and to help people find healing. And I, I think that you're, a defini- you're the definition of that for me when I see you at work. And, and even when I hear you share this story that, that actually your calling seems to me your calling didn't come completely from a position of wanting to heal people but from a position of wanting to demonstrate dignity and love towards people. Would that be right? Yes.
2: So uh, as we use a lot lot of word of calling a lot, and if we could open a parenthesis, you know, it's like, I used to hear people saying that, you know, they are praying to know what to do. And I think most of the times it's an excuse for not doing something. (laughs) Oh my. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I love it. <laughs> because from my experience, it's like who we are today, we have a history. And this and if we believe that God is in charge, I think He made us who who we are right now and we have enough resources, you know, to know what to do. If I make it right. It's like if you look from your story, from things that you experience, I think you will find at this moment. If you are facing some of problems or situation or, or frustrations, you know. I think you know you really know what to do. Maybe you don't want to do it.
1: I don't know if I make it clear. Uh, it's perfectly clear. I'm. I'm just laughing because uh, you, you're striking a bit of a chord here for me personally right now. But I I completely agree with you that sometimes I think we wait for some confirmation in our calling that has already been given to us via our 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 soul like our soul has already told us god has already spoken to us through our soul what he wants us to be about and what he wants us to do and then we and then we sit back and we go okay tell me more tell, tell me more so i can be sure rather than actually starting to do so you have this experience as a as a boy i'm assuming you were in your, you were a teenager at that time and you, you start to realize that there are some things for you to do, even as a teenager, in order to get ready to, to be a doctor so that you can love people. What, what we haven't mentioned is that there's, there were some key people that were inside that compound at that time that you were meeting. And were, maybe more importantly, they were meeting you. Who were those people? And how did those people invest in you in a way that, that helped you to, to pursue this calling?
2: I learned a lot from these people you know, in terms of character because I was lucky there were lots of books in that house. And I love reading. So it was an opportunity for me to read biography. And I can't—I don't remember how many kind of books like that I read. But if there's one thing I learned from these books, it's perseverance. So those books helped me. And those people, one of those people, they also believe in me. And I remember when I was trying to get into medical school and I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And my only option was, you know, not doing anything. Mm. And I went back to my neighborhood and me and my friend, Tony, we were like teenagers. I, I have to admit we had such an easy life because I was literally staying at his house and I was eating two times a day, watching TV there was even an, an AC in the house. Imagine that if you're staying in a room with AC in Haiti, where it's 40 degrees outside and you have food inside, you don't want to leave the house. <laughs> and one day something told me, Manu, is this the way that you want to continue with your life? So that was a waking, that was a waking call for me. That's when I decided to leave my comfort zone and to go to PowerPoints to pursue any kind of education. I was accepted to human science faculty to study sociology. Then as I was studying sociology, I didn't really feel comfortable in it. And then with the, then, I, then, I had a deception and I, I decided to go to the Dominican Republic. At this time, the border was closed. It was hard to cross. I made it miraculously. So there were so many danger on the roads and when I look back that I wasn't alone on the trip, then I met a pastor. he was kind enough to let me sleep and yeah, to give him the church as, as a house and I spent a lot of years uh, living in that in that church with all the Haitian migrants. It was a school for me, but I made it today I'm a doctor I'm not, I'm not sleeping on a pier anymore
0: so you went to, when you went to university or college, you slept. You slept in the back of a church on a pew every night. Same pew, or did you have to uh, you have to move around? Because here, you know, when people come to church here, they always want to sit in the same place every week. So I'm just curious, like, <laughs> were you wanting to sleep in the same place every week? Yes, that's what's uncomfortable. It's like, you know, it's your
2: bed, but well, sometimes you arrive, and if there are new migrants that arrive, if because it's my home, I can come back, you know, late to sleep. But those people, they just arrive, They, are not, they don't know the place. And when you arrive, sometimes you find someone else in your pier or in your bed. It-
0: <laughs> yeah, so you ask them to leave naturally, right? Like you tell them to get oh, out you of your
2: not can. <laughs> You can't. That's the hard part.
0: <laughs> You're sleeping there. Uh, you got your toothbrush in your back pocket because you can't leave it laying around. You're going to university or to college to be a doctor, but it's in a different language, isn't it? Like you're in yes. the Dominican, they speak Spanish, you speak Creole. So, what do you do about that? In order to
2: speak uh, Spanish, I didn't have the resources to go to a. a they have some kind of institute that teach Spanish. I didn't have that opportunity, but the only thing I had was I had enough money to buy a dictionary. And I said, I'm going to study it on the dictionary. And I was lucky enough that the pastor had a subscription with a newspaper. So every day they would leave the newspaper by the church gate. And I started to open the newspaper before the pastor. And I found out he didn't like (laughs) that.
0: I was going to say, so for a couple of years there, the pastor didn't. He was wondering where his newspaper was every week.
2: <laughs> but as I was reading this newspaper, every day I would say I would learn five new words. So I would start reading, and after five new words, I would stop. Because it wasn't the history that was interested and in. I wasn't interested in learning new words. Mm-hmm. And as you look up five new words in a dictionary, you might end up with 10 or 15 words, because you would, my curiosity, will look, for the word that is on top and the one that is at the bottom so that's how i was building my vocabulary and then usually on the radio they would have the same news that is on the newspaper and i would go listen to the radio to see if i could catch those words that i was learning and that's how i learned how to speak spanish i think in less than three months i was able to get around
0: wow yeah that i i always love it when you tell that story because it's it is just the definition of, I don't know what the word is. I might need a dictionary. <laughs> impressive. It's impressive. For sure, it's impressive. But to to come up with a strategy to learn another language on your own and then and then stick with it. But I just think it's an incredible thing that that this was one of the obstacles you had to overcome and you overcame it.
2: I think uh, Canada, they have this word. For people that are learning new language, and I think that's that's the best approach, is if I take you to Haiti with just a small book with some keywords, and I left you somewhere in the jungle with no one to turn to,
1: in one month
2: you will speak the language because you either speak it or die.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I definitely I definitely wouldn't be able to find a bathroom for the first week and a half that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> so you become a doctor and and for you like one of the most incredible things for you when i look at at your life is you 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 had a desire to show dignity and love towards towards people who are sick but you also have a deep passion for your own community and your own neighborhood so you you go back to your own town to be a doctor and what what was that like were was that accepted were were people em, did they embrace you as a doctor right away what did that look like for you and your as you were establishing yourself in your community cuz cuz uh, every time every time we come there i ask you know i get to interview sometimes some of your patients lots of them are these little old ladies who have diabetes and and i always ask them what was Mono like? What was Dr. Mono like when he was a boy? And they always can answer. And, and what's funny is they always get this really mischievous smile on their face. Then they tell a story about the kind of trouble that you got into when you were a, a boy. Now, I, I say that because I like that. I actually, I totally love that. But what's that like for them then? When that little boy who was causing trouble on the streets goes away and he comes back a doctor. Like, was that difficult for them to accept you as a doctor? And how, what was that like for you in your story?
2: Now I can look back. I have so many points that is a confirmation that that was where I was supposed to be. As I look back. But as I was going, I didn't know. Because when I graduated in, in a conversation with Kathy. I was telling her, you know, all the bad things, things that I don't like about the community. It's like, you know, it's a community that is praying like every morning, there's always a group of prayer. And it was like a nurse auxiliary that was doing all the medical work in the community. And people were dying because of, of that, because she was doing a lot, but she didn't know what she was doing, but she was the the only care provider. So for me, that doesn't, if you are serving a rich God, a loving God, how come you have this? A whole lot my conception about God and about who we are, this conversation with Kathy, and Kathy told me you can be part of the problem or part of the solution. Mm. And the, the the conclusion is that I'm not expecting God to come, you know, as a person to solve problems. I think it's God uses people like me, like you, to build his kingdom. That's that's what I at the end my conclusion. And when I look back of it, so many things that have changed in the community because I, I went back. And it's a confirmation. But for me to be a doctor in the community, it wasn't easy, but I made a lot of mistakes that could have been fatal didn't.
0: Hmm.
2: And I had this kind of what they call victory. So as I start to demonstrate people that we are fixing problems and they
0: started to have more confidence in me and it's, it grows. So um, I'm not sure if I've asked you this question before, but how has your practice changed the way that people understand God and in particular how they understand the other major religion that's present there, and I'm referring to Voodoo. So, I, I without getting too too much into the conversation around Voodoo, you you've often said this to me. Haiti is you know whatever whatever it is like 40 percent Protestant, 60 percent Catholic, and 100 percent Voodoo. That this is like yes. this pervasive thing. I, I definitely got those stats wrong, but but this pervasive sense. That voodoo is this, because it's an unknown thing in a lot of ways, it creates a lot of confusion for people. And you have a lot of sp- sick patients who come to you operating under the assumption that that they have an issue with the voodoo. So tell me, how is how have you helped to realign people's understanding of the kingdom of God? I think this is a whole book.
2: <laughs> you asked me to. <laughs> I'm going to try to make it simple. Okay. is uh, Haitian have a fatalistic view of illness. So the explanation of illness and death is of, na- of supernatural causes and that people that are jealous, your enemies or spirit are the one causing illness or responsible of your death. So to, to stay alive, you need to be in peace with the spirits. And to be in peace with the spirits is what you have to serve them directly or indirectly with feast, offering sacrifices, a way that you are vulnerable to the spirits. You are afraid of the spirits. As a Christian, once you get sick, that means it's a punishment. You are no longer, that means people go to churches to hide by fear of, of the spirits so you have lots of people going to christianity moving by fear they go there to hide and to be safe from the punishment of our spirits enemies or what, what whatever they call it so once those people become sick that means they were hiding but they wasn't hiding in a safe place so if i was not church to hide and i get sick now i have to go out and solve my problems maybe go back to church
0: again does it make sense? Oh, it makes sense. So so a little bit of what you're talking is a, is a perspective actually that I think some some Christians here who don't understand Voodoo at all would actually talk about an Old Testament God, that the Old Testament God punishes. So we make sacrifices yes. to please God so that he doesn't continue to punish. What is interesting is what you were what you just said or I just heard you say is, If you have this issue, in our version, we would say, so if you have sin, you can't come into the church. You have to go outside of the church, solve your sin, so that you can come back into the church. And what I understood you to just say was that the marker of sin is sickness, right? So so they come to you with their sickness, and they believe a neighbor or somebody has placed a curse on them.
2: And the result is it destroys community yeah so it, it creates this kind of untrust. It explains that you have been living in a, in a place for 50 years, suddenly you are sick and it's your neighbor that drove you to the clinic is the one responsible of your si- actual situation. So it creates some kind of violence, hate, it destroys community. so
0: that's what Voodoo does. And and so you come in, so they show up at the do- so they drive their neighbor drive their neighbor who they no longer like, drives them to your clinic. How do you talk to people about the illnesses that they bring to you then?
2: So this is one of I would I, I made this one of my uh, I would say mission is to give to destabilize this kind of opinion because in Haiti the devil is so powerful in the the, the mind of the people. So they make the devil responsible for all the bad things that is happening. And I always tell people that sometimes I feel myself as the devil's advocate. So I'm here to de-responsibilize the devil. Mm -hmm. Anyway, as the doctor, because when you come to me, I can explain to you why you are sick, And the cause of your sickness and what you can do to improve, and it gives results. It's a way for me to to make you someone that will fight against this idea that your disease was the cause of of bad spirit or in whatsoever.
0: Yeah, it's just that you're sick. Yes.
2: And, And a way for me to make you accept your disease and work with me toward a cure or if there's not a cure, I can explain it to you. I would tell people that this person is sick and you can spend everything you have to in voodoo or a voodoo priest for this person to, for a cure. There is no cure for this. This, this, is, this is the end. So you have to make peace. And sometimes they don't follow my advice. They would go. But at the end, some of the family would come to me and say, you were right. And it was of natural causes. And this way you build community. Mm-hmm. Because I have a lot of history of people that was sick in the community and they were blaming other people. And when I came, it was just it has nothing to do with voodoo or you know other people, but this is what voodoo does. It destroys
0: community. Wow. Okay. And I have seen you explain that to patients and and see see their minds open up to a much better understand or a healthier understanding of God, of community, and of the kingdom of God. And so I do think it's one of the primary ways that that God is using you. And people also get better. <laughs> so so it's not just the ideology thing that you are helping to heal. It's also people's health. And, and, and I love the partnership that you have in, in doing that in people's lives.
2: And you have the other extreme... Mm-hmm of some people that are sub-Christians, so when they get sick, they are going to the mountains
0: to pray for God to cure them. Yeah. And, and you're in the valley at the clinic with the, with the cure. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> so it takes, you know, lots of talking to churches to tell people that uh, the miracle already happened because to have insulin is a miracle. So if you are diabetic, there is no need for you to go in the mountains, you know, looking for for God to cure diabetes. The cure is already there, and the good thing it's free for us in this community mm-hmm. because of the love of of other people around the world. Mm-hmm.